23, as written by Paul to the church in Ephesus and abroad. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is God's word. He may be seated. <clears throat> you know, it's, all, it's always great when you uh, have to begin a sermon with two apologies. Uh, one is, um, at some point, uh, my voice uh, may become uh, a little messed up uh, with all of that. I guess everybody's car has turned golden over the last couple of days, right? Uh, my throat has become golden, but not in a good way. And uh, so uh, I want to apologize in case uh, there's um, some, some weakness there. We'll, we will uh, trudge through. Uh, the other is, um, uh, the usual practice is after we're, we're done and we're being dismissed, uh, one of the great blessings for preaching in this church is I get to, to greet folk and to be with you and to talk with you and to hug you and to see your kiddos and see your babies and to pray with you and these kinds of things. Uh, I'm not going to be able to do that today. As, uh, as soon as I'm, I'm done uh, speaking, I'm going to uh, turn everything over to Douglas. Uh, I'm going to be conducting a funeral for an individual in our city uh, at noon today, and we'll need to uh, skedaddle and, and get out of here. But would ask that you pray for me. Uh, I, I've never met really any of the people that are involved with this funeral today, but it's going to be a great opportunity to encourage and to speak the truths of God's Word and about the death and the burial and the resurrection. I'd ask that you pray for me as I speak to them uh, this, this, this afternoon at lunch. And then uh, one other thing that I might say before we get started with, with prayer is uh, just a reminder, uh, small groups begin tonight. And hopefully everyone has been called, everyone knows where they're supposed to go, unless uh, for some reason we have three groups, I think it's three, that are having to delay just a little bit in their startup because of some unseen circumstances or some things that are happening with uh, their family and life and these kinds of things. But uh, we want all of the leaders to know that if you still need to pick up some chairs for your group, you can do so today. Just make sure you contact Richard Chow. And uh, as we have been talking with our group leaders in the formation of the groups, we know that there are going to be a lot of folk that are not able to attend on Sunday morning that will be at the groups this evening. In the room behind me, what we call the communion prep room in one of the meeting rooms back here, you're going to find a box group leaders where you can go and you can get some communion supplies for those that did not partake of the Lord's Supper this morning in your group tonight. Uh, I think that's it. Isn't that enough? Uh, of, of announcements before we pray and get into God's word. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads and ask God to bless us. 
God of, of heaven who loves us as a father loves children, grateful beyond words to wield the emotion, are we, for every grace that makes us yours? We are grateful for every reminder of that love in the food that we eat, in the water that we drink, in the clothes that we wear, and through the people who love us in spite of who we are, but because of who you are. Thank you for calling us, and thank you for making us your inheritance, and thank you for giving us a strength not our own, and one that is not in us, to live as your children. And as we think about this prayer that Paul penned for the church in Ephesus, and for us these 2,000 some odd years later, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that the truths that we learn from this text help us to see all of these, these truths, Father, becoming ultimate realities in life. And this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. As uh, we've been studying and starting these sermons off, it's just a reminder that uh, we're looking at that great letter that the Apostle Paul penned to the church in Ephesus. Uh, it's a great letter. Uh, in all of the letters that Paul writes, there's obviously a lot of things that he wants to say to change the way that people think about grace and how that grace comes into people's lives and not just changes the relationship that they have with him, but changes the way that they relate to each other and the way that they, they love each other and relate to each other and speak to each other and exist as the body of Christ together in all of these cities around the world and through space and time. I was reading uh, recently, uh, many of you, uh, especially those that like to read uh, uh, American Lit, uh, you know the name Flannery O'Connor? Uh, what you may not know about her is that, uh, besides being a famous writer, she was a very, very devout believer. Had a very strong faith in God, had a strong knowledge of the Bible. While she was a, a student at the University of Iowa, she decided that she wanted to grow closer to God, so she began to write down her prayers in a prayer journal. And there's one entry that caught my eye recently where she writes, Dear God, I cannot love thee, the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of the moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. What Miss O'Connor discovered as she prayed and read and meditated and thought about God and, and, and tried to live the Christian life was that the more she learned that there was an infinite God that she desired to know, the more she saw herself standing in the way, her finite self standing in the way of knowing an infinite God the way that she desired to know Him. But knowing God is possible, Paul would say, and prayer is a part of it. Now, stepping out of just thinking about prayer and the concept of prayer for a moment, just think about all of these, these infinite truths and realities that we have discovered in the first 14 verses of the first chapter of the book or the letter we know as, as Ephesians. 
that when we come to God, and we come to God as His children, God blesses us with every spiritual blessing that we need in the heavenly realms, which means that it, anything that you need to flourish or thrive as a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, that has been supplied to you. We're chosen in Christ to be holy and to be blameless. We are predestined, which is a construction term that means you're, you're being shaped, you're, you're being uh, uh, formed into the kind of person that looks like the Son of God through adoption as children to God. Through Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, there is, there is the redemption from, from sin, which means that when Jesus died on the cross, it means more than just forgiveness. It means that the power of sin as a taskmaster that made us a slave, that is what we've been freed up from. And then on top of that, there is this, this Holy Spirit that at times makes us really, really nervous that God is using as a seal and as a deposit like earnest money so that all of the inheritance, all of the things that God has promised to all of his children will come true. And so much does he want us to believe that that is an ultimate reality for us that he describes that spirit as, as earnest money. That if in any way, and it, and it works like we do, it does when we buy a house, that in any way that God reneges on any of his promises or changes his mind or decides that this is not the route, that it's going to be some other route, he loses his Holy Spirit the way that we would lose our earnest money when we were buying a house. And when God loses his Holy Spirit, he ceases to be God. That is how much he wants us to have these, these realities, these truths, to become a part of the way that we see ourselves and see God and see each other and live in this life. And it's one really big, long sentence from chapter 1 and verse 1 all the way to, actually about verse 3, all the way to verse 14. And at the end of verse 14, it's as if Paul catches himself in the middle of this stream of consciousness about the greatness of God that should lead us to worship that he, in, uh, in a sense, kind of pulls up and decides to pray. And it's not because he's exhausted everything there is to know about God in those first 14 verses, all he's done is really describe for us just the crescent, the slim crescent of the moon. But he stops because he understands that we as humans need help for all of this information to become real. And not just to remain abstract information, that, it's just, you know, that we can quote it, but we don't really live it. That we can say it, or we know it, or we, 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 uh, we, we, can, we can say it back to each other, but it's not something that really affects the way that we live. What he wants is for all of this information to become real and not just remain abstract information. So in other words, it's kind of like a marriage. Marriage, have you ever known a, a, a young man who didn't have an idea in the abstract of what marriage is all about? Or a young woman? And the thing is, is that marriage is always in the abstract until marriage comes to us in a person. And then it changes. No one really knows what it's like to be married until you're married and you begin to get to know the person that you're married to. Now what Paul is concerned about, and this is why he stops and begins this prayer, he's concerned that all this knowledge and truth that he has written to the Ephesian church not just hang out there in the air or just be something that they can debate as an intellectual exercise 
but that they really get to know it. And notice in verse 17, he talks about praying for wisdom and revelation and knowing. In verse 18, he talks about enlightenment. Why? The verse says that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Say this part with me so that you may know him better. Let's say that part again. So that you may know him better. Not that you know God, but that you know God better. Paul's prayer is that the Christians in the church in Ephesus not just merely know God or about God, but that they know God better. At the top of the Christian to-do list is getting to know God better. That all of these abstract realities in the first 14 verses become ultimate realities as they come to us in the person of God. I love this quote by Dallas Willard as he's talking about the nature of faith. He says, faith is, is not saying that we believe something. And faith is not even, you know, it's not faith when we even believe that we believe it. It's faith when we act as if it's true. Brother of, of Jesus, James, chapter 2, verse 19 says, even the, the demons believe and shudder. And so Paul prays that all of these truths that he's written about, what God has accomplished, what the Christ has accomplished, what the Holy Spirit of God has accomplished, that all of these become a, an, an ultimate reality in the way that you live as you grow closer and closer to God and know God more intimately and deeply and you know Him better. And so as you grow closer to God and these ultimate truths become ultimate realities for you, there should be three things that happen as a result of this kind of praying. Number one, you begin to see all of life through hope. You see, all of life through hope. Look again at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Some of the more uh, 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 literal translations uh, have it this way, the hope of his calling. Now, the question, what in the world is a calling? Well, when we think about it in our modern age in Western civilization, we we think about getting a phone call, a cell phone. Somebody's calling right now, probably calling at the most inopportune moment, but we think about it in terms of a phone call or a cell phone. Paul in the first century had absolutely no conception of such a thing like a telephone or a cell phone. His idea of calling was one person calling out, trying to get the attention of someone else. An example of this would be uh, something like 1 Samuel chapter 3, where the Lord is calling out to Samuel, trying to get Samuel's attention and trying to get him to do something. Samuel, Samuel, come here. You might go so far as to think of it as someone calling out, trying to get somebody's attention that's in a desperate situation, like they're lost in the woods. Suppose you're that lost, injured person, and then all of a sudden you hear someone in the dark calling your name. Some voice that you recognize, some voice that's giving you direction, some voice that's coming after you. And when that happens, all of a sudden, in the fear, in the injury, in the dark, in the lostness, all of a sudden your heart fills with hope because somebody is coming after you. Someone is looking for you. Someone is acting and working and searching on your behalf. I'm always reminded of this, uh, this older brother, in Christ, a fellow by the name of James Moreland. 
spent more than 50 years in northern Brazil as a missionary. Has buried a wife there and has married another. And living in one of the poor areas of Brazil, he has just continued through his 50-some-odd years of ministry there to, to tell people about the gospel. Now, many years ago, he knew a family in this town that he was preaching for and planting a church in. They had uh, a, a young teenage daughter, and they had forbidden her with uh, very strong language. And no uncertain words was she to, in any way, date a particular boy in, in town. They discovered a couple of weeks later, to, to her chagrin, that, that their daughter had been dating this fella, and they, they dismissed her from the house, kicked her away. And there was not really much of an opportunity in these small towns in the north for her to be able to make much of a living, so she ended up in Rio de Janeiro. And there's not many ways that a young, beautiful woman makes it to Rio de, de Janeiro, uh, like in all of the major cities in the United States and elsewhere in the world, that when you're alone and you don't have a way of making money and supporting yourself, that there's always going to be somebody at the airport or the bus station that will help you discover a way. And she became a prostitute. And this was uh, during the time when uh, AIDS was running at a very high rate in the, the country of Brazil. She discovered that she had the AIDS. Um, for all intents and purposes, she was kicked out again by the men that made money off of her. She had no friends. She, had, she was in the darkest part of her life. And she went home. She knocked on the door. Her mother came to the door of the home. And she was told that she was not welcome there, that you cannot live in my home. And James, because of his connections there, heard about this young woman who was dying of AIDS and had no place to go. Her family had put her out on the curb, contacted her and said, you can live in my home. And my wife and I will take care of you. And she went home and lived with James and his wife. And they took care of her and they loved her. And James shared the good news of the death and the burial and the resurrection. This young woman was baptized. And in the days prior to her death, she lived with this greatest expression of hope. She lived with this unbelievable sense of hope because of the gospel and living with the people who loved her and cared for her. There's a sociologist who won the, lots of awards for his writings. His name's Ernst Becker. He wrote a really famous book in the 60s called The Denial of Death. And I think that he's really honest about life in modern culture. He says that, you know, if we're really honest about life and we're really honest and truthful about our own lives and the way that we perceive ourselves in the world, what we will confess as a great truth is that there appears to be this panic in us that is the rumble underneath everything. And then one day something changes. The Holy Spirit of God in your dark woods without hope and filled with fear 
The Holy Spirit of God breaks through all of that. And as Jesus has said in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7, that Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin and of judgment, but also of righteousness. We hear God's voice calling us out of lostness and blindness and arrogance and self-destruction into salvation. And as Christians being pulled out of the dark wood, being pulled out of the deep waters, of coming out of the dark valley, we begin to sense that, that life is something to be optimistic about because of what it is that God is doing for us through the Son and through the Spirit by giving us every spiritual blessing that we need in this life to grow and to become the human beings that we were always intended to be, to know that we have been released redeemed from that enslavement to sin that we can go to bed at night knowing that our conscience is clean because when he forgives he forgives everything and that all of those promises that we read about they fill us with such hope and not just the you know the kind of hope that 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 says you know i wish i was getting a bike for christmas but fills us with the kind of hope and uh, this hope-filled optimism that says if all of this is not true, then God implodes and self-destructs. There's a kind of hope-filled optimism, I think, that all of us should portray and manifest and demonstrate, not because we have a lot of money, or because we were born good-looking, or we have some kind of athletic ability, or that we're smart and we have letters after our name, that there should not be this confidence that's seen in us because of achievement or acclaim that we have received because of, of something that we've done with our life. That hope-filled optimism should come to us and be demonstrated in such palpable ways because of what it is that God has done and Christ has done and the Spirit has done in us. But there's a second thing. Not only do we, we see life through hope, but we know the depth of his love. In verse 18, Paul talks about the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. A lot of times, and quite frankly, I've done this for years, I think we make a mistake because we read it so very quickly. We read of our receiving of an inheritance from God in verse 14, and we immediately think, because of who we believe God to be, and because we've already read about our receiving an inheritance, that that's what he's, he's writing about again. But notice the language. His, God, His inheritance in His people. Now it's true, we do receive an inheritance from God our Father, but do you know that you're his inheritance? Back in, in, in verse 14, at the very end of all of these great things that Paul is, is writing about that are realities and truths for us, he's, he makes this statement that we who are his children, we who are disciples of Jesus, we're referred to as his possession. His possession question how does how what does that mean to say that we are god's possession what in the world does that mean what paul is trying to do is to remind us of something that is incredibly important and integral in the understanding of who we are as disciples of jesus and that is 
Not only does he give us an inheritance, but we are his inheritance. And this is not anything new. I mean, you go back to the Old Testament, you find this concept all the time. Psalm 28, save your people and bless your inheritance. Psalm 33, verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. Do you know what God feels when he looks at you and when he looks at me? When I look at my daughter and I look at my son, I mean, how do you describe the love that you have for those children? You know, Ellen and I have never would never have considered ourselves very rich except that we were rich in children. We would look at that Jessica and we would look at that Jordan and feel nothing but joy and feel rich in blessing and, and privileged and honored and knowing those two kids were ours was, you don't have words to wield the emotion that you have for that kind of joy. And when God looks at his adopted children, which he's already told us we are in verse 5, do you know that when God looks at you, he feels rich? Do you know that when God looks at you, he sees his own treasure? Think about Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, where we're told by that Hebrew writer that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What in the world was missing in heaven that he had to come and die on the cross for. I mean, he had that great partnership with God the Father and that relationship, that great relationship and harmony, partnership with God the Spirit, no sin, perfect holiness, everything's great. What did he have to come down? What is that joy that was not in heaven that he came and died on the cross for? Say it. Us. We are that joy that is the result of his loving us. I mean, really, what kept him on the cross? Roman nails? A Roman soldier? You know, defying him to come down? It was love that kept him on the cross. The joy set before him was us, and that is what kept him on the cross. When you get to know God better and better and better and better, this is one of the things that you live with. And when you get to know God better and better and better, you begin to live with a hope-filled optimism because you know that somebody called you out of the darkness and left heaven and the infiniteness of that space to come into our finite world in order for us to have a way out of the jungle, to have a way out of the woods, to have a way out of the darkness and to come into the light and to come into a different light. And then the last thing, and we're running over a little, I apologize, but we live in his strength. Listen to verses 19, 20, and 21. His incomparably great power. You know what that means? You have at your resources a power that you can't compare or anybody else compare to anything else as humans that we know in this world. That power is the same. Not like it. Doesn't look like it. That's not what he says. It is the same as the mighty strength he exerted in the resurrection. 
when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Here's a question for you. Why in the world would he use that as an example? I mean, he turned water into wine. He walked on the water. He multiplied loaves and fish. Why in the world does he not just say, man, that great power, the great power that, that turned water into wine, he doesn't use that. Why? He says the resurrection, the power that raised Jesus up, because the power that is at work in your life is a life-giving power, a life-changing power. What Paul wants us to know is that that life-giving power that raised Jesus up from the dead is also in our life. And there's two angles on this. The first, and we're done. Five more minutes or less. First, there is a power working against sinful effects. The Bible makes it very clear that we are not what we are supposed to be. We are fallen, and the sinful effects of that are hatred and violence and gossip and pride and arrogance and murder and lust and greed, and yet Paul calls us to become like Christ. He says one day we're going to grow up in every respect into the head, which is Christ. John said the same thing, but said it this way, if we claim to live in Him, we must live as Jesus did and paul will bring it kind of all together when he says in second corinthians chapter 3 that there comes a point when we with unveiled faces contemplate the lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the lord who is the spirit and then the second is that there is a power working against not sinful effects, but the effects of sin. The effect of sin made the reality of the world killing and death. And the resurrection power that changes you in this life, and you begin to taste it, where you were unruly, you become self-controlled. And where there was this animosity, there is love. And where there is impatience, there is patience. And where you were out for number one and, and, and greedy, there's kindness and there's gentleness. You get a taste of it. That at some point, the second coming of Jesus, at some point in history when that happens, that the full effect of that life-giving power will have the effect of overcoming death personally because of death being overcome by Christ on the cross in his resurrection. And the power of death is completely broken and we become ultimately and forever eternally the people that God created us to be and we will look truly like his sons and daughters. I don't know about you, I just want to live like that. I, you know, I, I was talking to a good friend yesterday, and a, and a, a, I'll tell you who it was. He's one of us. Uh, Daryl Hutchinson yesterday. We were just talking. He said, uh, you know, I've been really, really blessed in my career and as a businessman and all of that. But I, I, I tell you this, God could take all of it away, and I would still feel rich. I say amen. I say amen. I'm with you, Daryl. I'm with you. I, I just want to live with the knowledge 
as I grow closer to God, that I'm his treasure and he is mine. And then let everything else, let everything else come what may. I have to go preach a funeral. And I, I don't have a clue, really, any information on this fella, except that the people where he worked loved him very, very much. I want you, though, to have an opportunity to respond to this good news that is in Christ Jesus, who died on the cross because he lived a life that we couldn't live in order to die the death that we were supposed to die in order to give us that adoption as sons. And all of these, these truths become ultimate realities in our life. And if that's, if that's not you, then please, friend, please, don't leave without coming down and talking to our shepherds about how that can become true for you. These shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there's any way that we can bless you today, we want you to come down as we're singing this next song and make those needs known. Let's stand and let's praise God together. Sweetly, Lord, have we heard thee call.